0: All right, it's time for a uh, for a strange and lurid tale. This one's called "Ride All Night."
1: It's the Ride All Night podcast with stories of friends and family of the band from good homes, started during the pandemic of 2020 and continuing until we're done.
0: Thank you. We're trying some new things here.
1: Okay, here it comes.
0: Oh, hold on tight. Gonna ride all night. We got a million people to thank.
1: Well, welcome to the Ride All Night Podcast. I am so happy that you're here with me tonight. It's episode number four. I'm having so much fun doing this, and thank you. Thank you for listening. I'm starting to hear from folks. It's been such a pleasure having these conversations and hearing uh, some old friends reaching out, saying thanks, and they're enjoying the stories. So please keep reaching out. Come on the show. Let me know. Let me know if you want to talk. Times are tough, people. We're in deep. We're in three months into a global pandemic. A turning point in the course of history. There's people in the streets looking for the truth. The system is getting rattled. Do the right thing, won't you? People, let's stop this madness. Let's have the best of us rise to the surface as we navigate these troubled times ahead. But we're getting through it. We're listening to concerts on the internet. We're planting gardens. We're getting connected with our neighbors and our community. And we're spending a lot of time with our families, which is amazing. I I hope it's amazing. Is it amazing? Are you enjoying it? I am. There's tough times. Believe me, I'll be the first to admit it. But hey, man, we're riding this wave. So I hope that this finds you well. And thank you again for listening. Tonight on the podcast, we welcome Skip Daily. This conversation was recorded back in April, April 15th, 2010, April, May, June. That was two months ago, early in the pandemic, but what's changed? Everything's changed and nothing's changed. You know, time is completely tweaked, redefined. Days are long, days are short, weeks are long, months are long. I haven't left town. Am I ever going to leave town again? I don't know. Anyway, I hope you guys are hanging in there. It was an absolute pleasure chatting with Skip Daly. He's a freaky fan like myself. I really enjoyed hearing how he accidentally bumped into him at bogeys while on like some summer school thing or something like that. But he became a huge fan. He jumped in deep in the 90s and saw them up and down the coast. Not only that, but he played a big role in the release of their farewell live album, Take Enough Home and Todd's solo album, Dream of Love, and Railroad Earth's first release, The Black Bear Sessions. And it turns out that we're releasing this podcast on his birthday, Sunday, June 28th. A little bit late, late, it's almost 10, but hey, it's getting out there. So please enjoy the conversation with Skip Daly. And Skip, happy birthday, my friend. I'll tell you where I'm at. I'm I'm up here in Montpelier, Vermont. It is now what April fifteenth, so we've been on a basically school stopped a month ago, so we've been on for like a month. We've been on a home a homestay situation. Yeah. So for posterity's sake, why don't you just explain for our recording what the hell's going on here on planet Earth right now?
2: Yeah, the coronavirus came out of China in December, I guess it was and nothing to worry about here, nothing to worry about here until suddenly it was, right? Uh, and then now everything is shut down. And as you say, it has been for, I guess we've been kind of sequestered here in this house for about a month now, exactly. Um, like you said, it was right around when they pulled the plug on the schools. And you know I remember the last, the last time my wife and I left the house with the kids to go anywhere other than the grocery store uh, or for walks around the neighborhood was to a small party at my cousin's house, but that was like early March, and since then it's yeah, strange times. Tell us
1: where you are and who you're who you're in shelter with.
2: I am in Gaithersburg, Maryland, which is about 20 minutes or so, kind of northwest of the DC line, so DC suburbs. Um, I grew up in Maryland over near college park, uh, near the university, a small town called Berwyn Heights. And, uh, yeah, I've kind of been in this area my whole life for the most part.
1: Yeah. And who, who are, who's in your home now? Who, who's, who are you sheltered with?
2: Yeah. So my, my wife, uh, we've been married since 2002, my wife and I and our four kids, which range, who range in age from, uh, my oldest, Uh, daughter is 15 she's about to turn 16 in four days Uh, that'll be quite a memorable if lame 16th birthday for her I imagine and then uh, I have 12 year old boy girl twins and then I have a nine year old boy so there are six of us in this house desperately trying not to kill each other
1: (laughs) (laughs) and how is it affecting because I have a 10 year old in the house so I wonder how it affects different age kids who seems to be having the hardest part, time with it? or? Is...
2: You mean aside from my wife? Uh, <laughs> yeah. And me? Yeah. I don't know. Of the kids, um, it's funny. Certain things bother them, for sure. Not being able to hang out with their friends and all that kind of stuff. Uh, on the other hand, it's even though they are theoretically still doing school stuff, it's nowhere near the same. So it's not quite like a vacation for them, but they have a lot more time to do other stuff rather than sitting down and doing school all day. You know, they're trying to do, I don't know if they're doing this where you are as well, but they're trying to do like zoom meetings and uh, with the teachers. I'm sure the teachers are pulling their hair out as much as anybody. Cause it's just a whole new thing. Everybody's trying to figure out together. Yeah.
1: Our teacher. Well, it's, it's different grade to grade, but our teachers were very, were kind of somewhat slow to kind of get school work going and I think it was more or less like hey just take care of your kids you know not no real stress
2: yeah there is a bit of that I mean it's they, they for it's kind of ramped a little bit over the last three weeks or so initially it was that then it was hey we're going to start doing zoom meetings they need to attend the zoom meetings then it was you could tell they're trying to ramp up the assignments again to at least get some regular you have to turn this in on this day type thing um so it's somewhere in between now um, it's, it's interesting to watch everybody try to adapt to it. Yeah.
1: Crazy. And, uh, so you guys are having to homeschool. Are you like teachers now?
2: Uh, my, my wife and I both have a similar view on this, which is just that right now it's all about survival and my, we're blessed that our oldest daughter, our 15 year old, who is you know, the one in, she's a sophomore in high school. She is really self-motivated. I mean, we never have to nag her about homework. She's very diligent. Um, I imagine it would be really different if that wasn't the case, because she is the one of the four of them that being in high school, it's like, okay, you got to kind of keep up if you're there. Um, With the others being kind of in sixth grade and fourth grade, we just have the attitude of like, who cares, this really isn't gonna, you know, you're not gonna be 20 years down the road going Oh, my career is not what I want. If only I hadn't missed that three months of school in sixth grade. So we're we're kind of staying on them to keep up with the stuff that's assigned, but we're not really homeschooling per se. We're just like, whatever. I mean, just get through the days at this point.
1: And uh, so when you go out to the store, you full on... Uh, protective gear now, (laughs) masks, et cetera.
2: Well, I mean, they just, yeah, we, as of this week, we've started, um, I haven't been back to the grocery store myself yet since they did here in Maryland, they've done the mandatory masks thing,
1: which
2: which I think now is expanding. You know, if you go out somewhere where you can't socially distance, like the grocery store, um, you have to wear some kind of mask. Uh, Yeah, it's crazy.
1: Well, it's funny. I, I thought about doing this, you know, talking to homies during this time. Cheers. Let's hope we're not, uh, it's not like six months from now and I've got like 500 of these recorded and we're all squirreled away.
2: I got to tell you, I mean, I don't know how much you've been keeping up with sort of reading the, uh, what the analysts are saying about, you know, the medical experts and just what people are saying about this. But, um, most of what I read seems to tend to agree that this is not going away anytime soon. Uh, I mean, it's like we might get reprieves along the way, but if they listen to the experts, which hopefully they will, uh, it it seems like we're 18 months out from a vaccine and until you have the vaccine, it's really not gone. Uh, And and it seems like the best case is we do this maybe for another month or two, and then we might get a bit of a break where we could go back to quasi-normal, and then we'll probably have to do some form of this again several times over maybe the next year to two years uh yeah it's it's kind of to something you said earlier made me think of this i mean uh i'm i'll be 49 in june and i was thinking about this the other day there aren't too many things when you get to be almost 50 years old or however old you are there aren't too many things you could point out and say well this has never happened in my lifetime (laughs) i mean You know, maybe the World Trade Center has only fallen down once, but uh, other than that, I I don't have a long list of shit that I haven't seen in my lifetime.
1: Yeah, and it—I think it's that kind of thing that it just—you can take—you can take it in chunks. You know, like okay, we're gonna—they're not gonna go to school. You know, school's canceled for or school's put off, and then school's canceled for the rest of the year. Now there is talk of school in August, and yeah, absolutely. You know, and my goodness, what a to have the person at the helm at those at this moment in time it's gonna get crazy yes it's it's gonna be crazy let's have fun it's you know part of this could be a relief people are sitting home and to talk about the story is kind of something that is a is perhaps uh healing in a way sure what's going on but uh the common thread being from good homes so let's kind of navigate towards that actually and before let's a little bit more about you so you grew up right in that area yeah so you're Do you still have family around?
2: I do. Um, my mom is still, uh, I have, so I have one sibling. I have a brother who's still in the area. And my mom is still actually, my mom's still living in the house that we grew up in, uh, over in Berwyn Heights. Uh, my dad passed away sadly back in 2002. Um, but yeah, my mom is still in the area. So I grew up in Berwyn Heights and it was a good place to grow up at the time. And. I guess to segue into what we were what we're talking about tonight, um I really kind of got into music. You know, I did the typical crap in grade school of I played trombone for a couple of years, I played trumpet for a couple of years, but I didn't really get the bug. And it wasn't until high school when I kind of started really getting into kind of pop music on the radio that I got I became I got way into music. And then, you know, I Bought a bass and started learning how to play bass because I wanted to play some of those songs that I started liking, and so that was kind of what got me into music. And I was never really athletic, never really in the in sporto crowd or any of that. Um, so music kind of became my thing, and I just love it to this day, both playing it, listening to it, and, and everything in between.
1: And Can I so? Let me just interrupt you. So coming in high school, like late 80s, I'm guessing.
2: Yeah, mid mid to late 80s. I graduated high school in 89.
1: And what was the music? You said pop music on the radio. Was there favorites or was there, what were you into?
2: I guess it was like typical 80s radio hit pop stuff, you know, which I sort of, I don't know, I have a, um, I have a mixed opinion of at this point, right? Like it's what I grew up with. So it always has a soft spot in my heart. And you know, much has been said about the, uh, the 80s music style, right? Good and bad and all that. Uh, it sort of becomes just such a cliche at this point. But I, I don't know, I also, I hate to use the phrase guilty pleasure, right? Because what does that mean? If it, if it makes you feel good, why well, feel guilty about it, right? So it was the typical 80s stuff on, on the radio, which there's a lot of good music from that decade. So I went to, after high school, I went to University of Maryland and I studied geology. And so one of the requirements to get a bachelor's degree in geology from the University of Maryland at the time was among the course, you know, the regular curriculum, you had to attend a five-week field class where they sent you out in the woods and you had to map rock outcroppings and all that. Well, it was interesting. The University of Maryland at the time required this course, but they didn't offer it. So what you had to do was you had to go do it through another college. So in my case, I went up to SUNY Binghamton and did it, through their their um course which was based in uh i think it was a little tiny town in upstate new york called selkirk which is a suburb of albany so i found myself in may of 1993 and around the adirondacks for five weeks up in albany or around albany and the first after the first week you know we were all tired and i felt like going out i You know, had had met a few people at the class at that point and said, hey, we should go check out a band somewhere. So there was a guy who there was a teaching assistant. And I'm like, where's where do people go to see good bands around here? And he said, well, there's this place in Albany called Bogies that you should go to. They always have good music there and they have good beer and it's just a cool place. So here I go with my three or four new friends from this field camp and we wander in just on a random Saturday night, May of 93. We go in and we I remember to this day, we got there so early, they hadn't even started the cover charge yet. So we walk in and we're like the only four people in the place and we start playing pool. And you know, a few pitchers of beer in, and then you start feeling better and better. And then I'm looking around and the place is just filling up and filling up. And I had very low expectations for going to catch a band. I just wanted to go have it be background or whatever. And so after, three hours or so we look up and it's like the place is just packed wall to wall. And then the band comes on and Holy shit. (laughs) It was, I mean, that's, that was kind of a once in a lifetime experience. I don't think I've ever, and I've been in that situation a lot where it's like, let's just go check out whoever's playing. But that's the only time that's ever happened to me where it was just so good resonated. So immediately, you know, the place is packed and you could just tell there was I mean, you know, you know the band, so I don't have to explain it, but there was just such a vibe in the room. was my introduction to From Good Homes. And I remember at the end of the night, I went up and signed the mailing list. And I think I talked to, um, I think I talked briefly with Todd. And I got like the, the card with everybody's names on it in the mailing list or whatever. And I started talking to him. And what was kind of interesting about this was they had not toured down south yet, beyond sort of Jersey, maybe Pennsylvania, But they hadn't come down to D.C. yet or Maryland or any of that. But it just so happened that the month after this, they were supposed to play down in D.C. for the first time. I think it was early July of that year, which was like maybe, you know, a month after I got home from the field class. So I made sure to write the date down and it was at the Bayou down in D.C. Um, The Bayou, of course, uh, is no more. It's now paved over in its condominiums because that's like the high end section of Georgetown down in D.C., But the Bayou was quite a historic club in its own right. I mean, everybody played there back in the day. Um, I think it was maybe the second or third gig that U2 ever played in the States was at the Bayou. Wow! Uh, Billy Joel played there and recorded some songs from a live record there. So the Bayou had a lot of history to it, although it was a tiny place. I mean, it was only, I think, 300 capacity. Yeah. So it was just interesting, the timing, where... I get blown away by this band, Way the Hell Up in Albany, where it's packed. And then I come back from my class and I'm telling my friends about it. I'm like, you gotta see this band and look, they're coming to town like they were amazing. I've never seen anything like it. So I remember I dragged five of my friends out to the bayou and From Good Homes was opening up for Hootie and the Blowfish. They were at this point on their trajectory. They hadn't gotten up here yet. So Hootie and the Blowfish is playing this little, none of us had heard of them either at this point, right? so i i drag my five friends along we go down to the bayou and we get there early and we get a table kind of right down front and i remember i'm going on to my buddies about how great this band is and the room is just empty (laughs) it was the opposite of albany like there's nobody walking in right And, and my friends are starting to look at me more and more like you're sure they're good like you said they're good were you maybe just wasted and at this point, I'm starting to have self-doubt myself. I'm like, well, I was kind of ways to, But no, 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 they were great. They must have been, you know. So I swear, they when they took the stage, there was still just the six of us sitting there at this table. I believe it. And and they start playing because it was the first time ever in D.C. And, and my friends are immediately just like, holy shit. Like, we're seeing something special here. And we're the only six people in the room. And then, you know, as it gets closer to when the headline act is going to come in, the uh, the room starts filling up a bit, so by the end of their set, you know there was enough people in the room to have a vibe going and everybody's bopping away. But uh, it was really funny, and I remember, I think it was it was either Todd or Brady. One of them came up to me afterwards and kind of remembered me from Albany just enough. And I said, Hey, you know I saw you guys six weeks ago, and I dragged five friends with me and i'm convinced that that was maybe just that original kind of acorn of what would later become a friendship of cuz i i would do that then over the the next few months or whatever as they started coming back to dc or baltimore and slowly building up yeah i would always make it a point to try to drag as many people as i could to the show and and i think uh even if you know it says something about the band as people i think they always appreciated they appreciate those who appreciate them, you know, and try to kind of help in whatever small ways, yeah. Um, yeah. W- which is not a foregone conclusion. You know, every, a lot of people say, oh, thanks, whatever, and they don't really care. But these guys would always make an effort to come say hi and all that stuff.
1: There is. I mean, this is it's such an interesting story of this, of a band, and it's definitely an enduring band. And when I interviewed them. You know, they're just the connection they have with the fans is what really is at the root of it. I would, you know, you'd have to say, well, isn't that's got to be the case with every band. But I do believe there is something about them that keeps them that they have a commitment to their certainly the music and the fans.
2: Yeah. You can tell the bands that are actually connected versus just it's five guys going to work. You get that stamp of uh, authenticity because you're not going to keep doing that unless it is genuine. Can you so you
1: were down and it, you know it's interesting cuz when i am looking back on this I, my involvement of course was earlier on cuz i grew up with them and then kind of into the 90s but i then left um i forget when you were probably around for that rise of them in the 90s yeah. early 90s so can you talk about that music scene and other bands and what was it like and, and your knowledge of the music business? How, you know, what were the bands doing then? Like, it seemed like a lot of touring and a lot of, but yeah, just describe that scene if you could in that, that time frame.
2: It was actually kind of fun to watch because I'd never seen anything like that before. Certainly not where it was a group of people that I was kind of quickly becoming friends with. Um, I mean, I was first and foremost at that point in time, a fan. But then, you know, the friendship also kind of started developing just because they were fairly small shows still at that point, And I was always going to the shows and I think they saw I was always kind of bringing people. So you start just kind of chatting and then you chat a few times and before you know it, you're talking about stuff beyond just music. And it turns into that. So when I started seeing them, it would have been about the middle of 93. And at that point they didn't have I guess they had put out Gurr, the cassette Pick hop wasn't out yet, uh, none, none of the records had come out yet. I guess what I noticed from the shows in this area is they got more and more crowded. And it was fun to see it build just even in the course of a year from that kind of mid-93 to mid-94. You know, within a year it was like you would go and the rooms would be packed. And it kind of felt like the way it felt that night in Albany. Um, so it was fun to see that build just at a visceral level of being at the shows. But then through talking to them, you would also hear about this other stuff that was going on. And, you know, Monk was on the crew then and Cal. And so I was friendly with those guys, too. So you would kind of get information about what was going on behind the scenes with, I guess, they were being courted at one point by two or three major labels. As well as, what was it, War Records? Was that Rob Gordon's label with the samples and stuff? So there was a lot of companies interested in them. And it was early to mid-90s. You know, on the one hand, a lot of what was all over the radio, you had grunge had just exploded. So you had like Nirvana and Pearl Jim and all those kind of bands, which were back to sort of a heavy, raw rock sound with a lot of hair on it, you know, and and all that. But then on the other hand, you had a lot of bands coming out like Hootie and the Blowfish and Dave Matthews and um, was the other band, the Gin Blossoms and stuff that was far more melodic, organic, not so much about screaming, distorted guitars up to 12, you know. Um, So it was kind of an interesting thing that both of those things were happening really at the same time. I I like some hard rock, I like some heavier rock. A couple of my favorite bands are really hard rock bands. But generally speaking, I'm a sucker for sort of really well-written melodic songs that maybe have quieter moments. So I found myself really enjoying going to the From Good Home shows. I remember that there was one month where in the course of a single month From Good Homes played with Dave Matthews Band, Hooting the Blowfish and Blues Traveler, and all three of those bands were opening for From Good Homes. So that kind of tells you about the arc as well of, you know, all these other bands went, and, you know, From Good Homes got signed and was right in there with them. But for whatever reason, I mean, I'm sure there's a thousand other bands that could say things like that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I guess maybe thinking a little bit about the music itself, you know, you said you were drawn to it and the maybe a little bit about that first night in Albany. Like what was it that jumped out at you that made you like become a fan?
2: I think in retrospect, I mean, there was, there was a lot that jumped out just how great they were on stage and the obvious chemistry and the vibe in the room and the energy and all of that. But I would have to say if I, if I had to pick a single thing, it would have to be the songwriting. I don't know that all the other stuff carries over and stays with you the way that really well-written music does. I think it was probably days after that show where I still had specific songs stuck in my head. And and I'd heard them once. You know, I, I had like a bunch of beer in me and was at this bar, crowded bar with friends doing other, hanging out, whatever. And I remembered A week later specific songs like when after hearing them one time I mean how how many songs can you say that about you know it's something really special about um, you know Todd's songwriting in particular I mean there's obviously a lot of talented people in that band and you know Brady writes some great stuff and and Patrick as well especially more recent years but but you know Todd's songwriting has always been really special to me I mean it's amazing
1: I was telling him there's, I've, I had an experience with a lot of their songs where I'll fall in love with the song and not know a good percentage of the lyrics yet. And then as I, as I start to sort through lyrics, it's just like, oh my God, now I'm blown away by that song.
2: I, I've had it work both ways. I've had it work the other way too, where it's like a certain line will jump out at me and I'm like, that's an amazing twist of phrase or, or that's just a beautiful few words strung together. And 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 then the rest kind of wraps itself around you. And you're like, and oh, the music's damn good too. And you're right. It probably does work for me the other way more frequently where it's first the melody or the musical content that kind of grabs you. If you've got it all, that's what makes a song go from good to great in my view.
1: You know, it's been amazing and probably maybe many bands are like this, but I've learned from listening to a lot of these old tapes, they'd be out playing a song where they just had a, the chorus and a bridge. Maybe. Yeah. Like the, ly- the lyrics weren't yet written. <laughs> yeah.
2: It's funny you say that because there's I mean, a total, total digression. But there's um, I have a lot of from Good Homes live tapes, obviously. And I had an even bigger collection at one point. I sent them all back to Rich and he's been digitizing them, which is kind of cool. Uh, but I had two or three big boxes full of these things, some of which I'd gotten from Todd himself because I was at his house Years ago, and was looking through his stash and he was like, oh, if there's anything you want. And I was like, are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> right. So I picked some out and took some. Um, and, you know, like I said, it's all since been returned to the band and they've been thankfully bringing it up into this millennia with digitizing it. But there was one tape I remember where um, there was a song on it that I just loved. It was called Heading for the Water. It's one hmm. of those that's just blew me away when I heard it. And I, I asked Todd about it and he's like, yeah, I think we played that song twice. Huh. He's like, we wrote it. I don't think I ever even finished the words for it. And we just kind of played it a couple times. And I was like, well, dude, I have one of the performances of that on one of the tapes I borrowed from you. And yeah. he's like, really? And I'm like, it's amazing. It's yeah. an incredible song. And he's yeah. just like, it's not even, it never even got finished. I was like, well, fucking finish it. Yeah,
1: <laughs> It's amazing. He's got quite the catalog,
2: huh? Yeah. And, you know, I think we talked about this a little bit in email. Have you ever listened to any of his songwriting tapes? That stuff is amazing.
1: Oh, uh, no. You know, I was at his house this past year and where I got a bunch of these cassettes, but I saw his wall. I was like, he records so much, but no, I didn't. I haven't gotten a chance to listen to them.
2: He he hates listening back to him, though. Huh? Well, he'll never listen back. I mean, I remember asking him about them. Like, Do you got? He's like, I can't. He's like. You know, which is interesting as a musician in particular. Right. Because I'm kind of the opposite way, like with my shitty little bar band, like we play a gig. I kind of critique afterwards and want to hear like what could be better or whatever. He he has a hard time listening back later. He said. Yeah. So I thought it was well, kind of interesting.
1: So you got to listen to some of those songwriting tapes. What was your reaction or how would you describe them?
2: Oh, it's amazing stuff. I mean, it's it's um it's literally it's what you would think it is. It's he gets an idea for a song, sits down with his guitar, and 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 records the idea. I remember hearing "Cool Me Down," like from the original kind of the idea is a half an hour old type thing, and uh, just amazing. I mean, obviously very rough around the edges and very raw, but what a fascinating glimpse into the creative process. But I remember saying to him, "You should take some of those songwriting tapes." And you could do a monthly thing on your website where you pick a song, put up a clip from your songwriting tape, put up a clip from kind of an early band performance of it, put up a clip from later, put up the final studio clip. I would eat that kind of stuff up.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. Maybe now's the time. Like if the, if this persists, right? This yeah. is a time to do stuff that people normally may not be, but... Because you've mentioned another thing when we spoke, uh, or I think we were exchanging emails about an idea that was really cool too. And But you know, like a, a musician like that, I suspect they're on to the next song, right? Not... I,
2: I mean, I love Todd to death, so I, I certainly don't want anything I say to be interpreted as as knocking the guy, but I also like to tease him and he teases the hell out of me, so yeah. it's fair game. But you know, he definitely is, um, I won't say he's a technophobe, but to your point, he's he's focused on what he's focused on. I mean, there's a reason he's so good at what he does, but yeah. you know, he's never been like really in my, in my experience, like a, a technology guy. I mean, I'm, I'm still kind of in awe of the fact that we managed to successfully nag him into doing a webcast last week. And that was amazing. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. I talked to David and he told me some of the stuff that you guys were going through, David Tracer. And uh, like, I guess when he got to that point where he said, okay, are." would you like to share your camera with Facebook live? <laughs> right. And he's like, what the fuck? Like, I'm not doing that. It's like, no, that's what we're doing here. <laughs> yeah, 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 That's how this works. Yeah. Well, you know, that was one of the interesting things about when I got to sit down with him because um, he talked about their new album now and you know, it's about you reflect on friends and old people and you're, you're thinking about somebody and then the phone rings, you know, and that how that thing happens with people. But he also pointed out that, you know, with our technology and our gadgets and our gear, that skill could be getting, you know, whittled away. Yeah. And you can't deny that's a good
2: point. That's very true. I mean, it's, um, I, I always, uh, on the few times that I've been fortunate enough to, and it it hasn't been in recent years, but, um, you know, there for a while, we would get together more regularly uh, around the time of, um, I guess kind of after as from good homes was coming to an end the first time uh and as railroad earth was ramping up uh todd and i would hang out a decent bit and there were several times where i was able to go up and spend time with him at his house when he was in the old lone croft house with the barn out back and stuff and i remember just i would go up there and hang out for two or three days and you know we would talk talk shop and stuff because this is also when i was Uh, We were kind of working together a bit where I was trying to help him with his solo stuff. And, you know, we formed that record label together where we released the From Good Home's Farewell album, the live album, uh, as well as his solo album, Dream of Love. And then we ended up releasing the first Railroad Earth album, Black Bear Sessions, uh, on our little label. So we were, you know, we would meet to talk about that stuff and, and just end up hanging out. So I would go up there and spend two or three days, you know, at the house and, (laughs) late nights that were just way too late, you know, out being stupid at the bonfire, drinking too many beers and all that. But I remember I would come back from those trips just feeling kind of so refreshed because being down here in the DC area, the beltway and this traffic and all that kind of stuff was like going to a different planet for a couple of days. It was just so peaceful and quiet. And I really respected the way, especially as an artist, like if you're an artist, that he had you know put himself in that setting. And and I don't know that it was any great decision on his part, because that's just Todd. That's what he loves and that's what he's used to and that's who he is and it's probably how he grew up, you know, up there in rural New Jersey. Um, but it what a great place and a great vibe, especially if you're doing something creative like that. Um, there's just so much silence up there and it was I'm sure you were at that house at some point too, but it was that, you know, mile wide clearing in the middle of the woods and you know, his driveway was like driving a mile through the woods. And then you come into this big clearing. It was just an amazing place. Yeah.
1: And then describe the house once you got through that long wooded road up into the clearing.
2: Oh yeah. God. Well, the house and the barn too, right? Cause he had, uh, I, I'm not sure how this evolved over time, Vic, because again, I'm sure you, you were there at some point as well, but, um, the house i remember i think and it's actually on the web i didn't realize until later but i think it was called lone croft and it was like a historic it was built in maybe the late 1600s if i remember correctly and i remember a couple things about that house um well there were a ton of cats running around which killed me because i'm allergic to (laughs) he had like it felt like 10 cats running (laughs) around and i would literally wake up in the morning with like two cats like one on my head one on my chest like they know if you're allergic, you know, <laughs> they know what they're doing. Yeah. But uh anyway, sorry, I digress. Um, right. the house the couple things I really remember about that house that just blew me away is when you would walk in and the floorboards of the house, so it was obviously hardwood floors, right? Yeah. Um because I'm not sure they had much else in sixteen ninety or whenever the yeah. hell the thing was built. Yeah. But they were they weren't even like hardwood floors in the sense of the, the narrow strips, like we're all used to with hardwood floors. They literally, it was like, they lopped the trees down and squared them off. Yeah. So the, the boards were like, you were walking on trees that had been laid down and and polished and all. (laughs) So that was amazing. And that always stuck in my head. And the other thing was the fireplace in that house was like this monstrous medieval. It was like, it should have been in the castle kind of fireplace.
1: Yeah, that lo- I remember that being like you could cook a small animal in there. Yeah, like, or a big it was mat- animal. It
2: was- <laughs> yeah, right. And he would tell me, you know, they would have bears wander up. And like he would he would drive home. There was a couple times he told me he drove home from like a gig in New York City or something, you know. So he didn't get home until 3 4 in the morning. And he's driving up and there would be like a couple black bears just like chilling on the porch. Oh, my God. That, that was normal.
1: Yeah. Crazy. And his
2: barn, so the barn behind the house was at the time what he had turned into his studio, his recording studio, which was pretty amazing. Was that way,
1: was that when you came down the driveway, there was a big barn that you that ended at the driveway? That one or was it a different
2: Yeah, on, I think it was off to the left, if I remember correctly. So you would come down the driveway and the house would be kind of in front of you and the barn would be sort of tucked off to the side of it, if I remember yeah,
1: correctly. Yeah, okay. Wow. That he turned I didn't know that because I was actually there the previous owner was a girlfriend of mine. So I lived, I was there and I thought that barn was somewhat uninhabitable. It was like really. So that's cool to know that he turned it into a recording space. It
2: was, it was fairly bare bones. And when I say studio, I mean it in the picture, the loosest kind of Todd sense of he had a mixing console in there. He had some speakers and um, I, I should say he turned it into his, his studio. Uh, slash stereo system because late at night we would be out at the big bonfire pit out in that field and he would crank up like a Van Morrison record or something like that and it would be blaring out of the barn which is amazing. Yeah.
1: And you know what are great those early probably was it from the first Railroad Earth album, those videos that were shot there, the I think maybe Dave Manzo, did he do
2: those? I'm not sure if I'm talking if I'm thinking of the, the same thing you're talking about. I know that they did some Videos for, I want to say it was like amen corner when they were making the record. I think you're, yeah, they came later.
1: So tell me while we're there, let's stick with that time frame. So was Todd living there when they did their farewell show or no, or did that come later?
2: Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. When the farewell thing happened, that was August of 99. And I remember this because I went up and spent a couple of days with, with him and Aaron, like right around then. Because um, I crashed at their place because they did a couple of like secret shows before that they played, you know, like warm up gigs because when that show happened, they hadn't played together for what, six, seven months. I, I mean, I think they kind of their last gigs were maybe February of that year and then they decided to split up. So there was nothing for a few months and then they decided, okay, yeah, we'll do one final show at Waterloo. So they did i think they did a night at the Stanhope house, and they did a night in just over the p a line I'm trying to remember the name of the town but there were two like warm up gigs that were kind of you know playing under the assumed name and every the hardcores knew it was them and showed up, but they didn't want like a thousand people there so. yeah huh um yeah. So, but so he was, he was in that house at that point. Yeah.
1: yeah so tell me, I'm going to, we'll rewind in a second and go back into the earlier nineties, but let's talk about that time frame. since we're there. How did that turn? How did that come about where you started the label and was it because, was it through your work with Todd and from good homes or was that something you had done on your own or.
2: Yeah. So I hadn't, um, I mean, with from good homes at that point in time at the time of kind of, uh, Early 99. So we'll say February 99. That was when they, they, from Good Homes was coming to an end, right? And I think there was an announcement on the website like a, a month or two, maybe March or April, saying we're done. And at that point in time, I was just a fan and kind of friends with the guys, right? Just from going to a shitload of shows over the previous five, six years. Um, and, and this is what, this is what happened we were friendly enough at that point that i had todd's phone number and we would chat once in a while so after the word came out that the band was splitting up i called him up and this was probably around march or so of 99. so the band was done but they hadn't done the waterloo farewell yet and i called todd up probably around march and was like hey man what's going on you know it's sorry to hear what's happened just checking up on you seeing if you're okay or whatever and I, re- I still remember his voice on the phone, and you could tell, like, I mean, this was how many years of those guys' life invested in this thing, like, yeah, you know, it, it, was, it was. To say it was a massive bummer, I'm sure, is a gross understatement. Um, and, and I could hear it in his voice. And so, <laughs> I guess I was trying to be a good friend, as well as selfishly, I was just like, this guy should be playing music. Yeah. And I don't mean that in an arrogant way, like I could, you know, I was going to make something happen for him, whatever. I don't mean it in that way, but it's Mm -hmm. just a visceral, at a visceral level, I was like, this sucks. This guy should be playing music. And I just felt that so strongly. So I didn't know what the hell I was doing, but I was like, hey, I've heard some of the old recordings of your solo shows. Not just the band stuff, but I have recordings in my collection where you would go to like, crows and just play i guess the band couldn't play that night so you went and played I'm like i have these recordings and i love them they're fucking great i'm like why don't you play some solo shows and i kind of nagged him a little bit about it hopefully gently yeah and that conversation i remember ended with him finally i think i wore him down to the point where we're we're saying bye to each other on the phone he was like well i'll tell you what skip if you book them i'll come down and play them this is i've always suspected that he was thinking in his head He's not going to fucking do this. This is my out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? But he didn't know how stupid I was. I, I had no problem picking up the phone and nagging club owners. Yeah. So I literally called and started nagging people and I called him back like maybe a week later and was like, I got you four gigs down here in the D.C. area. <laughs> nice. So I set the gigs up and that would have been for kind of the end of May of 99. And. I could kind of feel him getting a little bit excited about it. Mm. I mean, I think he felt daunted because at this point in time, it had been years since he'd done a solo acoustic show. Yeah. He came down and he played four gigs. One of them, the first of them, what I remember was in Columbia, Maryland at this little like brew pub restaurant and a bunch of homies came out. And so it was great. I mean, I'm not going to tell you it was 500 people in the room cause it wasn't, but it was a solidly packed room, and it was Todd, solo acoustic, yeah. getting up there. And, and it was a great feeling in the room. And I think that kind of was maybe just, I, I certainly do not want to overstate my role in any of this. I'm not trying to be self-aggrandizing about it. But I think that in a tiny, small way, being one person of a jillion that has helped over the years, it probably was just kind of the little thing he needed just at the right time. And it felt good to be able to do that for my friend in some small way.
1: And then, so then it came about that your BOS boss, the label was formed at that time.
2: That came a bit later. Um, That probably came about maybe about a year after that. I I mean, um, those conversations I think started with Todd because, you know, fast forward a few months, the From Good Homes farewell show happened. And that release of that show didn't happen for a couple of years after that. So it wasn't like they played the show with an idea that, hey, we'll release this. That that came about later. Um, But, you know, into the fall of 99, I was booking him here and there. Todd was playing the occasional solo acoustic show and was kind of working on that. And I think he was getting more excited about that as this is going to be my new thing, the solo acoustic thing. And so, um, I, you know, I built a website for him. At one point, he was kind of trying to convince me to to sort of manage him. And I'm like, I'm not going to be able to do a good enough job for you. And also, I don't really feel comfortable taking commission at all. Probably into 2000 or maybe late 99. I can't remember when that Whitney show was recorded, but he essentially came to me and said, um, I want to put out an acoustic album, a solo acoustic album would you form a label with me? Would you help me form a label and we could put this out? And and I said, sure, I'm honored, that sounds great, but I want to loop a couple of my friends in who know more about the areas of this that I don't know about. So I, I had a couple buddies, one of whom I was playing in a band with at the time, uh, named Mike Greb, and another friend named Ben Dickinson who had more of a business head, accounting, and all that kind of crap. So. The four of us got together and Todd liked these guys and we all hit it off. And so we formed BOS Music together. And yeah, we, we released his uh, solo album. And then we ended up, I really wanted to do something with that From Good Home show because I knew that it had been multi-tracked. I think we put that out in 2002. Yeah. Um, and in between those two things, as, as Todd's solo record was kind of coming out, I think he kind of played some shows in support of that. But it wasn't too long after that, after the, his solo record came out, that Railroad Earth started coalescing. Mm. Um, I remember hearing about, I remember Todd calling me and telling me about this jam session that had happened. You know, It was like Timmy and those guys. Um, that just really blew up. And Brian was kind of involved right from the, the genesis of all that. Brian Ross, who was the manager out in Beverly Hills, who was Railroad Earth's original manager. He was in that world. I mean, he had done bookings at a professional level for years. He was a uh, music supervisor for film and TV with real credits under his belt. And he knew what he was doing and he knew the business. Yeah. So that's how he was. You know, he was kind of Railroad Earth was born with him as their manager. Gotcha. So that kind of all came together and was just in place. Yeah. Uh, And they just... I mean, I think they went in and recorded five songs as kind of a throwaway demo. And Brian took it and sent it out to like Telluride Bluegrass Festival and some of these huge festivals. And the guy who booked Telluride at the time, I remember Brian telling me this story. I don't remember the guy's name that was the agent for Telluride, but whoever booked that festival, the guy called Brian like a couple days later and said, he he started the phone call the saying, I never do this, I never book a band that I have not actually seen live, but I have to have these guys <laughs> nice. just on the strength of like that five song demo. Yeah. So that was how, you know, this band that just formed like two months prior and threw these five songs together in a studio got on the Telluride Festival. So a couple things happened like that. And that first summer they were on Telluride, they were on High Sierra or whatever. This was the spring of 2001. Um, so they probably recorded those demos in, like, March. And they had all these bookings quickly line up for that summer. Like, really high-profile shit. And they also had a, an agent, Chris Kate, with Treeline, came in. So they had the management, they had the agent, they had the response, and they had this five-song demo. So Brian was like, you guys need to go back in and record five more songs. And that became Black Bear Sessions. Ah. And so, again, this speaks very highly of Todd, to his credit, Todd went back to the band, and, and I didn't know the other guys yet. I didn't know Tim, I didn't know um, Andy, or, or uh, John Skian or any of these guys, uh, or Kerry, or any of them. I only knew Todd. All I know is that Todd was jamming with these other guys, and all this big stuff was starting to happen. In fact, at the time, Ben and Mike and I, with BOS Music, were kind of getting a little nervous that it's like, we're working on his solo record, and now he's about to take off with this other band. So Todd, to his credit, this again speaks very highly of him, he went, he didn't have to do this, but he went back to the band as well as Brian and all these guys and lobbied hard and said, hey, BOS Music should put Black Bear Sessions out. Like they should be the label for our first release. And so everybody, I remember a couple calls with Brian where he kind of was feeling us out, I think. Like, can you guys really make this happen? You know, can you get distribution and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and we're like, oh, I, I don't know, I guess, sure. I, I'll pick up the phone. Uh, so we had, that's how we put Black Bear Sessions out. And then we, we worked that record and that was my introduction to like working PR. I spent two or three years working PR for Railroad Earth for their, the first three years, I guess, of their existence. Even after, for the next record, they went to Sugar Hill for the next record by then we had proven ourselves with Brian to such an extent that he kind of baked into the sugar Hill deal. He's like, I want these guys working PR, which is kind of funny. Cause I <laughs> talk about learning on the job. I can call somebody on the phone and nag them. I guess that makes me a PR agent. Right.
1: Well, that's interesting. Cause like, as we think about the from good home story, And the music business, you know, because that when you think about a band like From Good Homes, did they make it, you know, the air quotes. So if you could just a little bit about what has it changed since the 90s to now? What was it? What were the priorities? How does it work for a band to to come together and make it?
2: Yeah, I mean, honestly, I guess to try to answer or not answer the second part of your question first I don't know how the hell anybody does it nowadays. I mean, is there a business there still? It's it's insane. I mean, certainly not right at the moment. Not at the moment it. <laughs> because it's all touring, right? I guess speaking more broadly about it and going back even to an earlier time frame, this is something I've thought about in the sense of if you go way back to the 70s or so. It's fascinating to me that back in the 70s, bands would go and they would write and record a record and then they would go on tour to support the record. And they would break even at best on the road, but it was the, the tour was basically a commercial for the album, and they would make their money off album sales. You know, The radio would spin the record and they'd get royalties, and that was how the bands really made their money. And it's fascinating to me that in more recent years, that equation has completely flipped on its head. Now it's like, if you make a record at all, it's basically a commercial for the tour and you're making money off touring and merchandising. Now that's for the bigger bands that can fill the bigger rooms, right? For the smaller bands, you're probably still breaking even on the road.
1: I remember I I spent a little time as the tour manager and, uh, it was, you know, we're all deadheads, We're coming off of touring, you know, literally touring with the dead. And, uh, and the notion of building a family, you know that following that idea and the mailers and creating that energy on the road. but then you're going into the city and trying to tra- to to get the label. But you know it's interesting I did I get to, I got to talk to Robin Danar on Friday of last week and um, you know the fact that when they when hip-hop was getting recorded and listening pre you know back in the, in 90 maybe where the shows were just so fun, but there wasn't the craftsmanship, you know? So certainly Jane and Robin brought in that re- reverence for the song.
2: It's it's, fu- it's funny you say that because that, that actually segues into something else that I really remember about those early shows. Um, and, and I think when I started seeing shows, you know, mid-93, I think what you just spoke of was probably already had been kind of codified because I remember that, you definitely got the sense of not in a totally rigid way, you know, they still would call audibles and you still wouldn't feel like, Oh, I'm just going to see the same goddamn show again. It wasn't, was never that rigid, but you could tell that they had a bit of a playbook that they were pulling from at that point. And, and I got to tell you, I loved it because, and, and I think I was speaking to Todd about this, not too long ago, or maybe it was rich. I'm like, you know, I was listening back to some of my cassettes from like, 93, 94, that era. And that 93 kind of set list, which I I could rattle it off to you because I still remember the order. It was just so killer. You know, with like, it, it would go, if the wind blows, radio on, let go, cool me down. Then they would play like something slower, you know, for the set pacing. Then it would be like ride all night, broken road, wide open wide. I only want, maybe we will, set break. And it was just like a killer... There was something about the pacing of that and and you could tell like i mean maybe at the, t- at the time i wasn't thinking about this but again with my collection being what it was and being fascinated with how bands evolve over time it also also deliberately set out to evolve their, their own presentation over time you can get the sense that 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 i'm sure that set list didn't just drop from the sky i'm sure that was formed over months of trial and error and the crucible of what works together what doesn't and then eventually it's like, this. let's not fix what's not broken. And, and, you know, if they didn't open play that for the first set, they would do like, you know, the B option, which is like, okay, we're going to open with driving and crying. And then there was a whole set for that that was, again, kind of like there'd be a surprise or two in there. But for the most part, you could tell they had figured out what worked and what really allowed them to come in and just grab the room by the balls. Right.
1: Yeah, you know, and I think it was clearly, it was the showcase set designed with that intention of you're going to have the label at a yeah. New York City gig and you got to give them all the emotions we're going to run you through. Right,
2: right. It's it's kind of like the elevator pitch, right? It's like you've got them for this amount of time and, and you want to grab them. You want to really put that foot forward. And it's not to say that there's not a deep, deep catalog there because there is. But man, that was... I, They they should do that now. I would love for them to come out at like one of these Christmas shows, almost like, or do it for a Halloween show. Be like for Halloween this year, we're going to be from Good Homes from nineteen (laughs) ninety four, and and play that set and act like they're introducing themselves to the crowd. Hi, we're from you know like. I think that would be those of you that
1: don't know us. Yeah. Oh man, there's so much to talk about. So, band split up. Um, I kind of want to know leading up to that. You know. What was that? And I also want to know when you met Rich, you know, how did you cross paths with Rich? Was that after? No, that's
2: actually really funny. Cause Rich, uh, Rich was a fan back then we met just going to shows. I think, I think we swapped tapes maybe back then or something. I don't remember exactly. Maybe he'd remember. I can't remember exactly when we met for the first time we would trade shows and we would uh, be at shows together because he would come down for some of the Bayou and Baltimore gigs he slept on my couch a couple of times. I remember, you know, we would come down from those gigs. And uh, so that's kind of how we met and knew each other. And then after all that, I guess, years later, like he, he went into the industry, like after he got out of college, he actually went into the music industry. Talk about a weird kind of uh series of, of circumstances there. I love Rich and I really admire what he has done with the band and you talk about something that just comes from such a pure place because everything he does for From Good Homes is um, truly out of love for the band in the best possible way. With his skills and his position and what he does for a living, he is able to do for them what he does. He loves the band and wants to see them still playing together and wants to present them with opportunities worthy of their legacy. Uh, it's perfect. (laughs) I, I, I love that, that he's in that role. He's the one that brought them back together again. He really is like for those, uh, that first reunion show in 2009. I mean, I remember when that was going on and he was working on them to do it. And he was putting the offers together and, and, putting those shows together and lobbying each of the band members. And he made all of that happen. And I, I just love that.
1: And and how were you aware of that? Just cause you guys were still friends or did, did you hear that? Did you hear that it was brewing up? Yeah, we,
2: we were in touch through that, that time period. And I remember a lot of, uh, you can't tell anyone, <laughs> you know, like yeah. uh, or, or, uh, you, this isn't confirmed yet. You can't tell anyone, but you know, <laughs> This is what I'm working on and, and it was great. that's the other thing I mean you I was thinking about this today you asked me if there was anything that I definitely wanted to include and I just can't say enough that these guys are just such great people. they are the people that you would hope they are and I want to say this carefully because I am still I remain a huge fan of the music and I always will be. I can't go to a from good Home show without at some point in the course of the show being really moved by what I'm hearing but I will say that in more recent years when I go to see them play as much as anything I just enjoy catching up with them as friends and and the the journey that you share over the course of however many years it is at this point of of going to sharing the music but also sharing the times together and just being in a room together you you can't help but have those bonds deepen over time
1: yeah no doubt but it was really nice to get to know you a little better. It's funny working on this when we had that email exchange with you and Rich. I'm like, wow, these guys are as freaky as me about this band. <laughs> good times, yeah, absolutely. This was tons of fun. And, um, yeah, be well down there, take care of yourself,
2: yeah, you too, sir. And keep in yeah. touch. It was good to uh, get to know you a bit better, too.
1: Absolutely, man. We'll talk to you real
2: soon. Sounds good. Take care. <laughs>
0: For the water